we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson. Thank you for joining me on this autumn day. Next Tuesday, October 20th, is International Sloth Day. Our featured guest on today's show will be Dr. Rebecca Cliff, a British zoologist who is considered to be one of the world's leading experts on sloth biology and ecology. She is the founder and director of the Sloth Conservation Foundation. Dr. Cliff speaks with us in this interview on the incredible work that the foundation is doing to help protect and nurture sloths in their natural habitat. And she also shares some fascinating and hilarious facts about these wonderful and unusual creatures. That's coming up later on in the hour, so be sure to stay tuned. Our first interview coming up shortly will be with 13-year-old Sir Darius Brown from Newark, New Jersey. Darius is a powerhouse teen entrepreneur, speaker, philanthropist, and animal advocate, and he's the founder of Bows and Paws. He creates handmade stylish bow ties and to date has donated hundreds of his bow ties to animal shelters across the United States to help dogs and cats get adopted. This kid has a heart of gold and I know you'll be inspired hearing his story too. Stay with us. So I'm here today with my guest co-host Amir Ali who is an Animal Voices alumnus. Welcome Amir, thanks so much for being here with me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a story that was just published in Euro News the other day. Um, it's kind of a, not exactly a news story, but kind of an op-ed exploring why women are more likely to go vegan than men. And this is something we have discussed on the show a little bit in the past, the article talks about how in the UK in 2016, the Vegan Society found that twice as many women as men were vegan. And it's not just the UK, though, with statistics showing an incredible 79% of vegans in the US identify as female. Um, so, Amir, you're a vegan man. Do you have <laughs> thoughts on this? I, I do. And it's it's kind of frustrating when you see the dialogue on the internet. Uh, very, I'm, I'm on Reddit a lot, and that's where I see a lot of this discourse around um, veganism not being masculine. And um, I think a lot of men feel like they would be chastised by their peers for going vegan. Um, and, and it's true, you know. There's a lot of guys out there that are are very insensitive to to men who 
I, first of all, I don't, I don't really like the definition that veganism is somehow inherently feminine. I don't think it's feminine to, you know, be kind to our animal friends. So I think from that point of view, I think it's, it's a silly argument for starters. I, I think I've been lucky personally as a vegan man. I haven't really had um, many people, I guess, come at me for being vegan and being feminine because of it. So I've been lucky in that way. But I can definitely see uh, how some men out there might feel a little more peer pressure from their male peers for being vegan, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right that, you know, traditionally, at least in our culture, you know, meat eating is pretty heavily associated with masculinity, um, kind of to a ridiculous degree. Um, so I think that that, yeah, that definitely plays into it a lot. Um, and actually, to, to correct what I was just saying, I said nobody has come at me for it. The one person that has... <laughs> is my dad. My dad and my, my family also very traditional. I'm a South Asian, so my family is very, meat is a very traditional part of our, our, our sort of staple diet. And my dad, when I used to live at home, always made these sort of offhand remarks about being vegan. I, I kind of brushed them off, but uh, that generational attitude towards eating meat, I think, is still very prevalent in, in certain cultures, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had uh, the author Carol Adams on the show a couple times in the past, oh, wow. and her um, sort of seminal work, The Sexual Politics of Meat, deals yeah. with this a lot. She talks a lot about, um, you know, feminized, what she calls feminized proteins, you know, plant proteins and stuff like that, and um, kind of lays out a whole philosophical framework about how this mindset works in our culture, and it's it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, super eye-opening book for sure. If anyone hasn't read it, definitely go get it because it's it's mind-blowing. Yeah, I thought so too. I really blew my mind the first time I read it for sure. Um, what would you say to, or what do you say to men that you know who are thinking about going vegan but are worried about, you know, backlash from their male peers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I would say if it's something that you, if animals are something you care about, then it shouldn't matter what anyone says, you know, you're doing the right thing and just follow the fact that you are doing the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, I think also it's I, I really feel like we have to kind of move away from um, this idea that, yeah, doing the right thing is masculine or feminine. I feel like there's just it should mm. be totally outside of that conversation. You know, we are getting to a point where um, the planet is in crisis, you know, largely because of our um, animal product eating habits. And we're, you yeah. know, killing literally trillions of animals every year. It's just a bad situation. So, yeah, I think the the right course is clear, regardless of your gender identity. Yeah, totally. And I think that also applies to everything. You know, if you're doing something that you feel is right, it shouldn't matter what other people say. Just just do it. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And we have some news to chat about this week. Um, the Tiger King's Doc Antle has been charged with felony wildlife trafficking and animal cruelty. This is kind of crazy. Um, this week, Bhagavan Doc Antle, known for his appearance in the Netflix series Tiger King, was charged with one felony count of wildlife trafficking, one felony count of conspiracy to wildlife traffic, four misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to violate the Endangered Species Act, and nine misdemeanor counts of animal cruelty in Virginia. The Tiger King Good stars, Lord. I know, right? The Tiger King <laughs> stars two daughters, Tawny Antle and Tilikum Watterson were also slapped with multiple misdemeanor charges related to animal cruelty. The indictments come after a months-long investigation by Virginia Attorney General Herring's Animal Law Unit. I actually haven't 
watch Tiger King. I thought about watching it, but then I thought, I don't think that's something I want to subject myself to. Um, but I recognized Doc Antle from some oh. other um, YouTube videos that went viral years ago. There was one about this little um, juvenile orangutan who had a friendship with a dog. And I think this was on one of Doc Antle's properties or something. And he was, you know, the... Um, person interviewed in the video. So he's been around for quite some time. And I think he's sort of known for his work with quote unquote exotic animals. But um, yeah, I don't know. Amir, did you have thoughts about this? Yeah, I haven't seen Tiger King either. And I was doing some research on on Doc Antle. Apparently, he was involved with like a, a Britney Spears concert in 2001, where he had a, a tiger on in a cage on stage with her or something. Oh, um, yeah, and my thoughts around just Tiger King in general, I also didn't watch it because of the the things that I'd heard about what it contained, but it also bothered me. And this happens all the time when there's any sort of big news story about animals being abused. Everyone kind of gathers around and, you know, throws their, their pitchforks up and complains about it, but they're ignoring, you know, the, the animal abuse that they're complicit in every day. So um, I didn't feel like I would learn anything new about how people treated animals and it doesn't surprise me at all that this doc antle guy has all these other you know criminal offenses against against animals and animal cruelty so uh it's just kind of par for the course for people that are in that world of zoos and you know animals for entertainment which is really unfortunate yeah absolutely i agree i'm yeah and apparently you know the article goes into this more about how most of the people who appeared in that show tiger king have been disciplined for you know, either wildlife trafficking or animal cruelty, like Joe Exotic himself is in prison currently for wildlife violations. And um, Tim Stark and, you know, some of these other people, they've uh, gotten in trouble with the law for, yeah, illegal wildlife trafficking and animal cruelty. So it is like a pretty gross, seedy industry in general, like people just sort of handling, I kind of, I kind of hate this term exotic animals or exotic mm. pets. It's just, you know, yeah, it almost glorifies them and makes it sound more inviting to go down that route because exotic yeah. things are usually celebrated almost. Right, exactly, exactly. But I think the point is that these animals are meant to be free living. They're not meant to be, you know, in captivity and, you know, they're definitely not pets for human beings. You know, we should just leave them alone. Yeah, and then moving on, we have a story from Kelowna. A group of activists from Kelowna have protested a Kelowna turkey farm and slaughterhouse on Thanksgiving long weekend. Um, there was a whole group of people in front of Ellison Farm protesting a new turkey farm and slaughterhouse. Um, to clarify, actually, they were they were gathered outside Patton Farms um, mm -hmm. the day before Thanksgiving. Um, obviously, there was some backlash against this from Patton Farms and from some people in the surrounding areas. Um, but basically, the main message was that the meat farm will decrease property values, contaminate water sources, and increase violent crime rates. Um, and these may sound like big claims to some people, but there have been studies that showed links between rates of, uh, for example, domestic violence and construction of slaughterhouses um, in various wow. areas. Because I think that, yeah, I think the the reasoning was that you know, obviously, slaughterhouse work is an extremely stressful job. Um, totally. It's, yeah. yeah, it's something that's very psychologically taxing for people. And um, it quite often has the effect of desensitizing people to violence. Um, so that then translates to 
what happens when they go home because of the water pollution, the air pollution and stuff that is caused by slaughterhouses and factory farms. It can decrease property values. It um, causes health problems in the surrounding communities. Yeah, one of the things that was mentioned in this Kelowna Capital News article is actually a quote from Carol Patton where she says, Canada is so highly regulated, we're so highly controlled for the sake of animal health and human consumption and protecting. There are so many entities and criteria we have to meet in order to able to process birds. So, I mean, that's all well and good. And she almost makes it sound like there's been no evidence of this in the past. But in 2016, just four years ago, there was there was documented proof of animal abuse at a turkey farm in Abbotsford. For so for her to say just because it's you know regulated and controlled that nothing bad's going to happen is is false. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean we regularly see footage of cruelty and various violations at you know local farms in Canada in BC. I think it's definitely you know the regulations that are in place are not enough and. Um, you know, yeah, and again, any like sort of major operation like that, it's regardless of how you regulate it, I think it's difficult to avoid just the pollution that it's naturally going to produce. So, um, yeah, and so in addition to the shutdown patent campaign, activists have also created a petition on change.org calling for no slaughterhouses in Kelowna. So you can find that that. Um, shutdown patent petition on change.org and we can link to it on our Facebook page Animal Voices Vancouver as well. And some good news actually out of China. China is set to end farming of 45 animal species by the end of this year according to a new report. Um, just a few months after announcing a ban on consumption of wild animals, China is now set to phase out farming of 45 species by the end of 2020. According to Sixth Tone, the English language sister publication of the paper, the ban will include bamboo rats, porcupines, and civet cats. A further 19 species, including hedgehogs, badgers, and guinea pigs, can only be farmed for purposes other than consumption, such as medicine. Um, that one is not so great, I suppose, but you know. <laughs> and just when you read off those animals, I'm just like shaking my head, like porcupines. What are you guys doing with porcupines? I know, I know, it's unbelievable. I, but I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that they're sort of making these moves. Um, the article goes on to say that in the early days of the COVID crisis, the consumption of wild animals and the disease risks posed by wet markets fell under the global spotlight. China responded with a nationwide ban on trading wild animals. The new regulations go further, outlawing farming of many species that are typically classed as wild, even if they're bred and reared in captivity. Farmers who continue to trade any of the 19 permitted species for medical or other accepted purposes must work with the government to strengthen safety measures. Um, some activists still have concerns, though. Qian Jiangming from the anti-poaching crime squad feels the new regulations do not go far enough. He said, we still have concerns. Wild animals bred for purposes other than eating might be secretly sent to restaurants in the absence of adequate supervision. A blanket ban on breeding wild animal species with a white list of exemptions would be easier and more straightforward mm -hmm. to manage. Um, yeah, so that's definitely an interesting criticism. Yeah, that was my concern when I first read this article. Uh, I don't know if you saw the documentary that was on Netflix like four years ago called The Ivory Game. Um, no, I don't one think of I the 
one of the the key portions of that was how China and uh, parts of I think Hong Kong I could be wrong but China definitely had a, a very thriving black market when it came to ivory and I feel like if, even though this is totally good news on the surface the the black market there especially when it comes to using animals as medicine and how they might be able to sort of twist the rules in their favor still kind of worries me mm-hmm. so um, definitely positive steps but yeah I think they're to uh, Tian Xiaoming's point, they, they definitely can be doing and should be doing more. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'm really happy to read about this in general. I think it's a good step in the right direction. But you're right, it's uh, it does seem like there are loopholes in the legislation still that could be exploited. So um, definitely needs further work. Um, and yeah, it's some, like this is something we've talked about on the show as well, kind of the link between you know, not just consumption of what we would call wild animals, but consumption of animals in general and um, global pandemics such as COVID-19. There's definitely a strong link there. Yeah, right when the the pandemic emerged, there seemed to be a a bit of a trend, you know, in the favor of plant-based foods that I was hoping would sort of stick out more throughout this year. But it seems like that momentum has kind of fallen. So um, I I wish people would think about this more and think about, you know, our, our habits, our purchasing habits that, you know, there are risks involved in animal agriculture globally. So um, I hope people take that into consideration when they're making their purchases at the store. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me, Amir. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, no worries. Thanks again for having me. It was fun. Are you a renter in Vancouver wondering how you'll be able to pay rent during the pandemic? Are you worried about rent debt? or the possibility you might be evicted from your home. The Vancouver Tenants Union has your back. They have been very busy during the COVID-19 crisis, trying to affect legislative change that protects renters all over the city from rent debt, rent increases, and eviction. Find out how you can be involved by visiting their website at vancouvertenantsunion.ca or send them an email at tenantsunion.yvr at gmail.com. My guest today is 13-year-old Sir Darius Brown from Newark, New Jersey. A precocious entrepreneur, speaker, philanthropist, and animal advocate, Darius creates handmade stylish bow ties for shelter animals to help them get adopted. His company is called Bows and Paws. He has been featured in numerous news media pieces, won multiple awards, and even received a presidential commendation from former President Barack Obama. Hello, Darius, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being with us. So first of all, tell me about why and how you got into making bow ties for shelter animals. So I really got to started making bow ties for shelter animals because during Harvey Irma, I, I noticed all the devastation that was happening and I really want to help, but I didn't know how. And then I realized on the television that I saw all these people were getting helped and yeah, that's a good thing. But how come there wasn't any animals or pets being helped? So I realized on the news that I realized on Facebook that dogs are being transported from Texas to New York. And at that time, I was already making bow ties. So I thought, if people would have gone on bow ties, why can't dogs? So I decided to use my passion of handcrafting bow ties to donate them to animal shelters and to help them to donate my bow ties and animal shelters so the dogs and cats find it for ever-loving homes. And I made it my mission to help as many dogs as I possibly can. 
Beautiful. That's amazing. Um, so tell me a little bit of background on how you got into sewing in the first place, like how you got into making bow ties. So I got into making bow ties because it was my sister who helped me because anything my sister did, I wanted to do. And at the time, my sister used to make hair bows for the ladies. And I always wanted to copy my sister. So I always had my sister on the sewing machine. But when I was two years old, I was standing with the speech delay, comprehension delay, and fine motor skills delay. So my sister was scared if I was going to use the sewing machine because she was scared I might have hurt my hands in some sort of way. But my mom came up with the great idea that if I was help, if I would, if I could help my sister cut the fabric, then it could also develop my fine motor skills. And after some time, I was I. My fine motor skills really got better, and I was able to use the sewing machine. And then once I started playing around with more fabric and started playing around and testing, I decided to just come up with bow ties. Beautiful. Wow, that's so wonderful. Um, and how many bow ties would you estimate you have made and donated to animal shelters to date? Um, I would say I have donated roughly around over 500 to 600 bow ties. Wow, that's so cool. So how exactly do your bow ties help dogs and cats find forever homes? So what my bow ties are meant to do is that it's supposed to give, because anytime you go into an animal shelter, you don't expect a dog or a cat to wear a bow tie. So it's really, so if, if the adoptee comes see the, the dog or cat wearing one of my bow ties, it makes them like stand out or makes them special. So really it will give them like that little something or a little extra that they need to get adopted faster. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen on your uh, website, there's a photo gallery of some of the shelter dogs and cats wearing your bow ties and they look so adorable. Um, so I can absolutely see how it would um, attract potential adopters. That's such a great idea. So, <laughs> so what do you like best about doing this work? Um, what I love best about doing this is I'm doing this out of the kindness of my heart. And I just love giving back and I love how I just I just love doing what I'm doing. I love how I'm doing something great and giving back to my community because I just love how I'm saving I'm saving dogs' lives because when I went to the animal shelters in the ASPCA, I realized that if dogs stay in the animal shelters for too long, then they could get euthanized. And it really made me sad and heartbroken when I realized that. So I made it my mission to help as many dogs as I possibly can. And really, I just love the fact that I'm really just help saving dogs' lives and I'm just giving back and helping them. That's so lovely. So um, I wanted to ask you about something that I saw on your website as well. You set a goal in 2019 that you call the Possum Mission. Tell me about this. Yes, so the Possum Mission is basically a mission of where I would go around 50 states across the United States of America to donate some of my bow ties to, to those animal shelters. But unfortunately, due to COVID, I wasn't able to do that because I was supposed to go to the spring and this spring and this summer, I was supposed to go to 10 different animal shelters, and I wasn't able to do that. But sometime around next month, I'm able, I'm going, I'm going to try to, like, donate some of my bow ties to 10 different animal shelters. That's so lovely. Wow, that's so great. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that, actually, because of the pandemic. It seems like it would throw a wrench in something like that, but it's so wonderful that you're going to continue anyway. Um, are there any other animal advocacy goals that you hope to accomplish in the future? Um, some other animal advocacy goals I want to do is that 
I realized that a lot of anime shelters, they don't have the budget to do a lot of things. And they really need a lot of help. So I really want to find my way to give, like, monetary donations to help them, like, help even more dogs and even more pets and so that they could do more things. And I want to be able to help still help as many dogs around the world as I possibly can. And I really want to create, like, my own animal shelter or boarding home. But I want it to be, like, like a fun place for the dogs and cats. That's so lovely. Like, kind of a, a sanctuary? Yeah, they, yeah, something like that. Oh, cool. That's so amazing. Well, we'll have to watch you. Keep an eye out for it. Um, I w- <laughs> Actually, there was something I was a little bit curious about. You go by Sir Darius Brown. What's the story behind that? Did you come up with that name yourself, or was that a nickname somebody else gave you? The story around that is um, I'm, everybody that I knew always kept on calling me King and Sir. And over time, everybody just kept on calling me Sir, so I thought that it was like a God-given name to me. So I just started calling myself Sir Darius. That's beautiful. Wow, very cool. And you look so dapper in your bow ties and everything. It really fits. So Thank you. what would you like people to know about animals in shelters? Um, what, I like to, I want, what I would like to inform people about the um, animals and animal shelters is that um, please, make, please make sure that you find, find it in your heart if you have any space to please adopt and any animal, please don't buy it because it's better to adopt. Take it in as your own because it will help you. It's like it's a it's going to be a part of your family. It's going to help you tremendously. So please make sure you adopt them if you can. Absolutely. That's a great message. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Anything coming up? Some final thoughts is um for anyone out there who is listening, make sure you keep up the great work. Keep on doing what you're doing. If you want to um, start a business or do encouraging things, keep on doing it. And stay possible. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Animal Voices today, Darius, and sharing your amazing work with us. And we wish you all the best in the future. Of course. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Sir Darius Brown or support the work that he's doing, either by making a donation or purchasing one of his handmade bow ties, visit SirDariusBrown.com. A portion of the proceeds from each purchase is donated to the ASPCA. To go back even further now, about four or five years, I think. This is this was the first song I released, and uh, it must have looked like a terrible hype because, you know. <laughs> Stephen singing I Love My Dog must have been very strange but anyway I meant it this is called I Love My Dog I love my dog as much as I love you do you make faith my dog will always come through All he asks from me is the food to give him strength. All he ever needs is love and that he knows he'll get. So I love my dog as much as I love you. The you may fade, my dog will always come through. All the pay I need comes to shine through his eyes. I don't need no cold water to make me realize that I love my dog as
Hot Squats Noyap, Monica Kleinsnaw. Hello, my name is Monica. We're from Norgate Community School. Hot Squile Tanoyap, Norman Kleinsnaw. Tina Chitla Homalchistan Squalautu. Chapwa Tequayaan, Ta Vancouver Co op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. Online at www.coopradio.org. Next Tuesday, October 20th, is International Sloth Day. My guest today is Dr. Rebecca Cliff, a British zoologist who is considered to be one of the world's leading experts on sloth biology and ecology. She is the founder and director of the Sloth Conservation Foundation and has been featured in multiple programs on Animal Planet, the Discovery Channel, and Netflix, as well as the award-winning documentary film Meet the Sloths. She joins us today from the jungles of Costa Rica. Hello, Dr. Cliff, and welcome to Animal Voices. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thanks so much for being with us. So first of all, I understand that you were exceptionally interested in animals and nature from a tender age. I'd love to hear some background on how you became so passionate about studying sloths specifically. Um, the sloths were actually a bit of an accident. I like to think that they found me um, because I was, I mean, I, I was studying zoology at university because I just, I loved animals and I, I loved biology. Um, and I always had this interest in tropical biology. Um, but yeah, I never really thought about sloths before. And then I had to choose a research placement for as a part of my degree. And it just so happened that one of my supervisors um, knew a lady who owned a sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica. Um, and of course, this just 
was like my dream. So I applied for the job, um, worked really, really hard for the interview and managed to get the position. Um, and then two, two weeks later, I was on a plane to the jungles of Costa Rica where sloths took over my life. And oh, wow. <laughs> that was 11 years ago now. So yeah, I, I just fell in love with them at first sight. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So as I mentioned in the intro, you're the founder and director of the Sloth Conservation Foundation. Tell me about some of the main problems that are currently threatening sloths in Costa Rica and how the Sloth Conservation Foundation is addressing them. So the problem for sloths is that they can't run and they can't jump. So if you've ever seen a sloth move, then they are really careful, really slow, and they sort of span gaps with their arms. So they really do need trees to be connected at the top in order to move around. Um, now, in countries like Costa Rica, where you, there is a lot of development and a lot of humans, um, a lot of the time the trees are no longer connected. So especially in urban areas, you end up with sloths either trying to move around on the ground or they try to move using alternative structures. So this is where most of the problems happen and they do all relate back to humans, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but the leading cause of death for sloths in Costa Rica is actually electrocution on the power lines. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's really horrible. And it's just because they're trying to move around and they use those cables and they don't realize that they're electrified. So they climb on them and then they get these awful electric shocks, um, which can be up to about 20,000 volts oh, no. at a time. Um, and yeah, that, it's really sad. There's only about a 25% survival rate. Um, so that's a big one. And then you've also got the problem of if the sloth can't use the power lines, then they will try to move on the ground. Mm -hmm. And a sloth on the ground, I don't know if you've ever seen the like, YouTube videos of sloths trying to cross roads and things. Um, but they are not very good when they're on the ground. They're a bit like a fish out of water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, um, they're very vulnerable. They, they've got no way to defend themselves. And if a dog comes along, then, um, yeah, they, they, they become victims of dog attacks an awful lot. And then you've got cars on the roads, um, so road traffic collisions, all these things that do just relate back to humans. Um, and then sort of to... to um, there's a growing problem in countries like Costa Rica and places like Colombia. Um, and this is sloth poaching, which mm. is yeah, just heartbreaking. Um, but it's not being done for food because nobody really wants to eat a sloth. Um, it's actually being done to fuel the demand for hands-on sloth encounters and sloth selfies. Wow. Um, yeah, so no one, nobody really thinks about this one, but you get a lot of tourists coming into Costa Rica who really want to see a sloth because they love them and they've seen them in the local zoo, but they really want to see one here. And um, some people do tend to take advantage of that and they will offer people the opportunity to touch or hold a sloth. And what the people don't realize, the tourists, is that that sloth's actually been taken out of the wild and it's being held captive and being used as a photo prop, um, as a way to make money. And they'll use it until it sadly uh, dies, which is about two weeks usually. Um, and then they just replace it with another one. Oh, no. um, so people don't realize this. And it's all about education um, to try and fix issues like that as well. But Sort of the root of all these problems is, again, it's humans and our relationship with nature and 
the fact that um, right now in this sort of world we live in, trees are worth more dead than they are alive to a lot of people who own a piece of property. Um, so all of our projects at uh, the Sloth Conservation Foundation, we um, try to come in and, and restore the balance and we try and work with people and with communities and governments to try and um, make it beneficial for people to protect the wildlife. So we provide them with sort of financial incentives and alternative um, livelihoods. We pay for power lines to be insulated so sloths can't get electrocuted. Um, we build something called sloth crossing bridges, which are my absolute favorite. <laughs> They're like little uh, wildlife bridges for sloths to help them cross the road and to navigate. Mm. I know between trees and urban areas and they really do um, use those. They're very, very effective. Um, and then we do an awful lot of education as well. So education of local people, as well as education of um, people internationally um, and children, a lot of work with children just to try and um, firstly educate people about sloths, but also teach them about the problems with things like sloth selfies um, mm -hmm. and how they can help. So a lot of different projects, a lot of reforestation as well, a lot of planting sloth friendly trees um, and just working with people to, to, yeah, hopefully make the world a safer place for sloths. Yes. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. Amazing work. Um, so I'm sure one of the questions on everybody's mind is why do sloths move so slowly anyway? <laughs> this is the ultimate sloth question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a combination of things, but I think the most important factor is that they have this really slow metabolism. Um, and their metabolism is so slow that it takes them 30 days just to digest one leaf. Wow. So that is the equivalent of a human eating a piece of lettuce and it requiring a whole month before you get any energy out of it. Oh my God. Uh, so they really don't have much energy. Um, so they do move slowly to save energy, but then also if you don't have any energy, then you have to be really, really careful about your predators because if you get seen by something like a jaguar, then you don't really have any energy to run away. So what we're actually discovering is that sloths move slowly um, as a way of predator avoidance. So they sort of creep through the canopy so slowly, none of their predators see them, and then they don't ever need to worry about having to run away, um, which is a pretty ingenious way to live, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's amazing. Um, are there any other surprising facts that you can share with us about sloths? Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> people, I mean, they think sloths sleep all day, um, but they actually sleep for only about 10 hours a day. Um, but if you take one out of the tree and put it in water, then the sloths can swim three times faster than they can move on the ground. So they're actually really amazing swimmers. Um, and a probably my favorite fact about sloths, um, which is a super weird one, but um, they will only go to the bathroom once a week. And to do this, they will climb all the way down from the top of the tree. They get to the forest floor and they do something. I'm not kidding. It's scientifically called the poop dance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they hold onto the tree and they sort of wiggle around the base of the tree. And it looks a little bit like they're twerking. Oh, my God. Uh, 
<laughs> but what they're actually trying to do in, in sloth world is they're trying to dig a hole, okay? They just have to use their butt to do it. Um, so they dig this little hole. I know, it's crazy. And then they go to the bathroom, and at this point, they lose 30% of their body weight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, physically shrink, and then they do another little dance to bury it again, and they climb back up the tree. Um, and nobody really knows why they're doing that. It's a really big mystery in sloth behavior. <laughs> That's amazing. I I was just thinking about all these workshops that you do for kids. This must be so fun for kids to learn about sloths or something. Uh, we we get kids in Costa Rica doing the poop dance. Oh no. <laughs> Great. Oh, it's so wonderful. Um, I was also actually I was looking at your website, which is a fantastic website, by the way, the Sloth Conservation Foundation site. And I was so grateful to see um, actually on your personal website, BeckyCliff.com, you acknowledged that animal agriculture is the leading cause of rainforest destruction, including the destruction of sloth habitat. Um, this is something we've covered extensively on our show over the years. And of course, eliminating animal products from our diets is certainly an effective way to help sloths and other endangered or threatened species. But I'm wondering what are some other ways in which we and our listeners can help sloths and also support the work of the Sloth Conservation Foundation? Oh, that's an amazing question. Um, so there's two different sort of things people can do. And the first one is by changing our behaviors. Um, because I do think in the next 10 years, humanity does have a responsibility to um, really make some quite serious changes in the way that we live mm -hmm. if we want to protect biodiversity and um, sort of stop climate change and things like this. So I think there's a, a responsibility of every single one of us from government officials down to just everyday people um, to make these changes. And a lot of them can be sort of don't waste food, don't waste things, mm -hmm. um, be resourceful, live sustainably, don't waste electricity, all of these things, even though they might seem like they're not making a big difference, but to a species like the sloth who depends now on the, the rainforest for survival, and it is being deforested every single day um, to provide resources for people, um, it does, the, the collective impact of these little decisions um, really is what is going to save sloths in the long run. So I do think everyone can, can play a really important part. Um, and then also, the, if people want to get involved and help us with our projects um, and learn more about what we do, then head over to our website because we've got loads of ways for people uh, to get involved. And it can be things like adopting, adopting a sloth. That's one of my favorites. Um, you can, uh, yeah, get a little adoption packet in the mail, which is an amazing gift for Christmas if anyone's looking for a present for a sloth lover. It's a really good one. Um, and then another really popular one is to sponsor one of our sloth crossing bridges. Um, and this is where you, if you fund the materials for a wildlife bridge, then what we will actually do is build a sloth crossing in your honour um, and we'll put a, a little sign underneath with your name on and a camera trap on the bridge. So whenever a sloth or a monkey or an anteater uses that bridge, then we can actually send you the video um, of that happening. Um, so you'll have your very own sloth bridge here in Costa Rica, um, which is also a great gift for a sloth lover as well. Um, so loads of different ways to get involved in our project. We've got tree planting schemes you can get involved with and all sorts so yeah just head over to our website and uh 
Let's let's make the world better for sloths. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on Animal Voices today, Dr. Cliff, and for sharing your knowledge and insights with us. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about the Sloth Conservation Foundation or make a donation to support the work they're doing, visit slothconservation.com. Here's a clip from Science Insider featuring today's guest, Dr. Rebecca Cliff, with more fun facts about sloths. Enjoy. If there's one thing you know about sloths, it's that they're, well, slow. But that doesn't mean they're boring. In fact, sloths are one of the most extreme animals on the planet. And not just because they poop only once a week. First of all, sloths really are extremely slow. Their top speeds clock in at just 0.25 kilometers per hour, making them the slowest mammal on the planet. According to zoologist Becky Cliff, that's because, well, sloths can't really see. 60 million years ago, they lost the ability to see. They went almost completely blind. So in the daytime, a sloth actually can't see anything because it's too bright. If you can't see where you're going, you can't run around because you're going to fall out the tree. Moving slowly may sound like a liability, especially if you're nearly blind. But being sluggish actually comes with all kinds of benefits. For one, they save an enormous amount of energy. In fact, Sloths use about 90% less energy than the average mammal, which is vital considering their diet is a low-energy snack consisting of leaves with a side of leaves. And as it turns out, being slow also helps sloths avoid detection. You see, sloths are so slow that predators like jaguars and eagles, which use movement to hunt, can't even find them. But some sloths take predator avoidance to the next level. Thanks to rare extra vertebrae in its neck, the three-fingered sloth can turn its head 270 degrees, which allows it to smell incoming predators from almost any direction. And that's especially useful when you spend nearly all of your time motionless in a tree. In fact, sloths sleep, mate, and even give birth, all while hanging upside down on a branch. And as you might expect, that requires some pretty extreme adaptations. They've got special tendons in their hands, which lock into place. And along with their long, hook-like fingernails, allow them to hang easily. They're like a giant coat hanger. And to combat a rush of blood to the head, which might be familiar if you've ever hung upside down. They have special um, sort of valves in their, in their circulatory system that does actually stop the pooling of blood in the head. But if you think that's extreme, consider this. Once a week, sloths risk their lives on a daring journey from the protective forest canopy to the ground. Their mission, to poop. And it really is risky. We th suspect about 60% of predator-based sloth deaths happen while they're pooping. They literally risk their life to come down to the ground. So they have to make it count. And boy, they really do. Sloths can lose an astonishing 30% of their body weight each time they go. Plus, they might get a mate out of it. How do you find a mate if you're solitary and you can't move very far? Well, they're gonna have to use pheromones and scent markers. Um, I think that coming down and leaving a little pile at the base of your favorite trees 
is sort of like a little signpost. But if there's one thing that really pushes sloths over the top, it's their rough fur. Sloth's fur has its very own ecosystem. Because they live in the rainforest, it's often, uh, wet, which creates the perfect environment for algae to grow and provides sloths with green camouflage. But it isn't just algae that calls a sloth's fur home. You can also find beetles, cockroaches, and a species of moth that's found nowhere else in the world, except for on a sloth. And the sloths don't seem to mind one bit. But that's not all. Their fur might actually save lives. Fungi in their fur have been shown to fight breast cancer cells, and they may also have properties for fighting malaria. So despite their slow pace, sloths are far from boring. And in some environments, they aren't even slow. I mean, look at that daredevil go. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada on unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Join us here next Friday, October 23rd at noon for more informative animal-friendly programming. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. Now we'll leave you with a song. This is Philip Lawrence with It's a Jungle Out Here. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today. Please stay safe and healthy and remember to be kind to the animals. Yeah.
Banana and tomato, cabbage, spinach, avocado, chocho, butter, bean and cocoa Courgette, millet, plantain, rice and peas and pumpkin Mango, dates and guava, chickpeas and cassava Brussels sprouts and cauliflower, onion, fennel and cucumber Plum, pear and papaya, aubergine and sire Lime, lentils and quinoa, oatmeal bread and oatmeal flour Watercress and okra, tofu and sweet pepper Couscous and carrot, broccoli and coconut Peaches, apples, apricot, breadfruit, jackfruit, sour sap Pistachios, cashews and almonds, walnut, peanut, also pecan Sesame seeds, sunflower, lemon, orange, pineapple and melon Mogul, wheat and garlic, kiwi, corn and turnip, pacho and pomegranate, hijiki and rocket, berries, cherries and strawberries, beetroot, grapefruit and celery. You see the meat's not necessary. We tell them say, how when me eat them, I wonder when me eat. When me tell them say me no eat no fish, no no meat now. How when me eat them, I wonder when me yam. When me tell them say that I'm a vegan man. How when me eat them, I wonder when me eat. When me tell them say me no eat no fish, no no meat now. How when me eat them, I wonder when me yam. When me tell them say that I'm a vegan. Hey, look how me big and me say look how me strong. Some people can't believe that me a vegetarian. If you want a healthy body, check the real Rasta man. Cause Rasta man we tell you about the right nutrition Me get me calcium, me sodium, me get potassium Me get me zinc, me get me iron and me magnesium Instead of yam the fish, me yam what the fish yam Like the kelp and Irish monster growing at the ocean Me get me proteins and me minerals, me get me calories The vitamins A, the B, the C, the D, the E, the F, the G It's 
your fatty acid like the omega tree Me get me fiber and me carbohydrates in my body Don't forget your water, drink a few glass a day The toxins in your body just flush them away Some of the things you eat stuff in your body and decay When it come to food I don't play We tell them say, I when me eat them I wonder when me eat When me tell them say, me not eat no fish nor no meat now I when me eat them I wonder when me yum When me tell them say that I'm a vegan man I when me eat them I wonder when me eat When me tell them say, me not eat no fish nor no meat now I when me eat them I wonder when me yum When me tell them say that I'm a vegan A lot of people woulda stopped eating the meat If they had to kill the animal before they coulda eat Look on the way the animal then get treat Unsanitary condition where some of them keep it We're supposed to eat the meat we woulda have shot teeth You wouldn't need a knife and a fork you know see You can't eat it raw you have to cook it complete And put on vegetable seasoning to make it taste sweet How when me eat them I wonder when me eat When me tell them say me not eat no fish nor no meat now How when me eat them I wonder when me yum When me tell them say that I'm a vegan man How when me eat them I wonder when me eat When me tell them say me not eat no fish nor no meat now, how when me eat them, I wonder when me yam When me tell them, said that I'm a hey, It's up to you, you can eat what you want to You can be a vegetarian and be healthy too There's a lot of choice around, many foods around you Just remember, some more I forget to tell you The nectarines and tangerines and clementines and guanabana Light tea, oats and ginger, kale spillerina, mung beans, homey pasta Have you heard about Megaphone Magazine? It's an award-winning publication sold on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria by low-income and homeless vendors. When you buy Megaphone, you get entertaining and informative stories written by professional journalists, and you're also helping to empower people in poverty. Here's how it works. Vendors buy each magazine for 75 cents and sell them for $2, keeping the profits. With the money they earn, our vendors are able to buy healthy food, clothing, and other necessities. Plus, they forge valuable connections with their customers. People unable to access traditional employment can earn an income with flexibility and dignity and feel proud of their contributions to their communities. Don't miss out on this month's edition of Megaphone, chock full of voices and perspectives you won't find anywhere else. You can find a vendor on the streets of Vancouver or Victoria or buy online at megaphonemagazine.com. Join us every Sunday from 11 to 1 p.m. for All Over the Map World Music. Inspiring songs from every corner and continent of the globe. Asia, Africa, the Americas, Europe, Australia, and beyond. Hosted in the English language with music from anywhere and everywhere. Every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., all over the map, world music. Sounds from around the globe on CFRO 100.5 FM, Co-op Radio. Hey, this is Josh Eastman, and you're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. 